Hi everyone and welcome to this latest instalment of UK and the Changing Europe's Brexit and Beyond podcast and today I'm delighted to be joined by not one fantastic guest but two. Mark Elliott and Alison Young are both professors of public law at the University of Cambridge. They are, in my opinion, who cares what I think, two of the best minds and communicators on how the British constitution works. So I hope we're going to learn a lot over the next 30 minutes or so. Alison and Mark, welcome. Thanks, Anand. Good to be here. I mean, what a time to be doing your jobs, eh? Because, I mean, it's brilliant, isn't it? Admit it. It's such fun. It's brilliant, but it's not good if you like sleep. I think it's probably the best way of putting it. <laughs> yes, if you write a textbook, it means that you can't recycle much of the last edition, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like it's like politics lectures now. You end up sort of revising them sort of almost before you finished. And yep. uh, it's sort of an ongoing thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, have you ever experienced anything like the last five years? No, not really. The element of it just never ending, if that makes sense. You just think you've dealt with one particular issue and then another one comes along and takes over and another one comes along and takes over. The speed of change, I think, is not something I'm used to at all. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. I think it's certainly in the 20 or so years that I've been doing this job, I can't think of another period like it. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, we'll come on to this in more detail, but one thought that struck as the sort of line between what is constitutional law and what is politics become a bit blurred everything's got a bit blurred in my mind right? <laughs> i think part of it is that so, so much has had a constitutional law dimension to it hasn't it so even things that are not really centrally about constitutional law there's some constitutional law in there and therefore it kind of takes on that sort of additional dimension and i think that's what's kind of pushed the sort of thing that we do to the center stage in a way that it often often isn't it's blurred in the sense of legal issues are dealing with constitutional matters that then have political consequences. Where there's a worry is that it's blurred in the sense of the courts are now taking political decisions. Um, I don't think that is necessarily true. And I don't think it's necessarily the case that courts are taking more decisions that look political. I think it's just, as Mark was saying, we're in a situation where almost anything is taking on a constitutional dimension, has all these knock-on consequences, and so it looks as though they're blurring more because of the consequences of legal decisions. Well, that's, that's interesting, because I mean, I've, I've always thought that everything is political. And so when people say, you've got to keep sport out of politics, my instinctive response is, well, that's just ridiculous because sport is part of politics in the same way that, you know, what we eat and allow to eat is part of politics. So so for me, politics is everywhere. But I suppose the question for you two then is, what is constitutional law? Where does it start and stop as a discipline or as an area you're interested in? As an area of a legal discipline, I don't think it stops in the courtroom. And I think it's important that it doesn't stop in the courtroom and that constitutional lawyers are aware not just of what's going on in courts, what's going on in Parliament, but also what is going on in the sense of the the kind of hidden rules. So things like how conventions are operating, how standing orders are operating, how aspects of ministerial codes or cabinet manual are, are operating in practice as well. I think they're all within the field of what a constitutional lawyer is looking at. But I think the separate issue is what should the courts be doing? So you wouldn't want your footballer sort of taking political choices, but sport is part of politics. And I think it's the same kind of aspect. Lawyers are asking different types of questions and using different types of reasoning in areas that deal with political matters, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it, it's hard to talk about any of these things without talking about the Miller cases at some point. So I'll be the first to mention them. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I win the bet. <laughs> one of the things that made those cases so difficult for the Supreme Court, I think, is because the political context in which those questions arose was, was so controversial. I think it was almost inevitable that they were going to be criticised for having sort of intervened in political matters. And I genuinely don't think they did. And I say that as somebody who is critical of the legal reasoning in the first Miller case. But in spite of that, I don't for a moment think that the judges were overstepping the mark in terms of interfering in, in politics. But it, it was actually, I think, really hard for them to convince people of that because anything that they did or said around those issues was going to be seen as political. And that, that's a really tough thing for them to actually deal with. I increasingly think that anything that came into contact with the Brexit process came away changed because it was so all-consuming, so explosive, so divisive. But anyway, on to, let, let's talk about the Constitution because otherwise I'll just chat to you and we'll get to the end and I'll realise that I've not asked you anything about your work. So I suppose there are two takes on the last five years from a constitutional perspective. One is that it's blown the British Constitution apart. The second is it has revealed what a wonderful thing it is. It's so elastic, so flexible that actually it's come through this relatively unscathed and proven its worth. Are you allowed to take sides on questions like this? <laughs> We're allowed to take sides, but I'm not sure if we will do. What you've pointed to is the one bit that does work in a sense of if you're dealing with a big constitutional change or something that looks like a constitutional crisis, then in some senses having a flexible constitution might be easier to be able to achieve this. So we can achieve Brexit by enacting a series of pieces of normal legislation. There's no need for special majorities. There's no need for sort of special, more complex procedures that might not succeed to achieve those changes. So in that sense, it looks good. It's adaptable. It's flexible. But the price you pay for that sometimes is not all the changes come through legislation. So a lot have come through delegated legislation, which don't necessarily have the same, well, they definitely don't have the same democratic scrutiny as primary legislation. And I think it's also raised various issues about the extent to which is this a constitution that works because there are some kind of extra political checks on it? Or is this a constitution where everything really depends on politics and power, how politicians are behaving and whether you have a strong majority or a minority government? And that, for me, I think has been aspects of showing that sometimes our constitution doesn't necessarily work in the way you think a constitution should work, which is putting in, in some senses, not just political, but legal checks on governmental power. It's shone a, a very bright light on what I would call the sheer ad hocery of the constitution in, in the sense that you know a, a lot of the reason why the constitution works a lot of the time in the UK is that we kind of, we have lots of fudges or, or constructive ambiguities, if you want to be politer, uh, and we kind of muddle through often by not really fully addressing the hard questions, because if we did, we'd begin to unpick the fabric and then you'd end up with a piece of wool rather than a whatever whatever garment you want the constitution to be in this metaphor actually what's happened is that that has allowed us to to start off a process that we never really understood how it was going to end it's begun to force us to confront some really hard questions along the way particularly around things like devolution and the territorial constitution 
we have the luxury of the flexibility that means that we can kind of set off down this kind of road, but we don't always have the tools at our disposal to then really answer the hard questions when we have no choice but to confront them. I mean, in that sense, if I was going to try and be optimistic about this, could you say that Brexit did us a favour because it forced us to address a number of things? You've mentioned devolution of the territorial constitution, the role of parliamentary sovereignty in relation to both popular sovereignty and the courts, a whole load of things that were inherently ambiguous, that we'd basically been too lazy, too scared or a mixture of both to really you know, tackle head on. But Brexit came along and basically said, well, look, you've prevaricated long enough. You've got to sort this stuff out now. I mean, were these all problems waiting to happen anyway? I think they were in in a sense that many of these things would probably have had to be confronted at some point in some form to some extent. I suppose the way that I would see it, what Brexit did was it, it kind of telescoped everything and it meant that there was this whole bunch of things that we all kind of knew to some extent were there in the background. And at some point, maybe somebody would have to actually sort of look at them properly and and would have to sort of make a decision about them. But I think it kind of concentrated everything and it, it forced so many, and it is still forcing so many things to be looked at together. That's what makes it uniquely challenging. It meant that it just sort of brought so many things to the top of the agenda all at once. I agree. And I think it was a real catalyst. But I think part of the problem of it is that it was having to be done to a strict timetable. So you were creating a situation where you suddenly saw all these issues that you're right, we hadn't fully reflected on things like devolution, further devolution within England, the relationship between Parliament and the courts or the government and the courts. But it did so at a time when it wasn't necessarily the right time to be able to ask those deeper questions, if that makes sense. There's a strict timetable to get Brexit done. And that took over. And so the ad hoc element of, well, we've just got to get this done, fix it up, patch it up, and then take a step back and see where we are. And also, it just creates such strong bifurcation that we it was almost like a a shock to the system where everything became polarised. So there wasn't the chance to actually take a step back and think about, well, let's collaborate and think about how best to have devolution working. That wasn't the right environment to be able to look at that because you're doing this against a strict timetable where you had a particular objective, where if you weren't sort of necessarily going to go down one particular track, it wasn't the right time, if that makes sense, to be able to weigh up competing issues. It was all about this is where we've got to go and we've got to get it done to a strict timetable. And that, in a sense, has has made some of these problems, I think, worse. I think that's a really important point, Alison, and all I would add to it is that I think along with the time scale kind of problem, because of Brexit and and, and all of the baggage that that carries, it it means that we were then confronting these really hard issues in a political atmosphere that was a lot more charged and difficult than it might have been if we'd looked at these questions in a more measured kind of plan sort of way. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, if you sort of looked at the notional inbox of the British state at the moment, and just sort of, you know, you know, we've got to we've got to level up. We've got to create a global Britain. We've got to, oh yeah, there's a relationship between politics and judges, and you know, oh, we've got to fix Scotland. No, there's something happening in North. I mean, it's just it is absolutely staggering how many massive issues suddenly need to be resolved now. Five years ago, we did uh, an edition of this podcast with the Swiss ambassador, and I remember him saying, you know. If, if we'd had a referendum like this and it had been 52-48, then the next day we would all have sat in a room and we'd have thrashed out a compromise because clearly 52-48 is a score draw in all but name. 
I don't know if you can do this, but is it possible to entangle what is constitutional and what is a result of a majoritarian political culture that imposes a certain style on how our political class do things? I mean, how how important is that in, in terms of the sort of constitutional matters that you have to deal with? I mean, presumably on social media or when you do talks, you notice it because one side loves what you say and one side hates what you say, because that seems to be how things are. But more profoundly than that, how can you sort of delineate the two, or can you? It constantly comes back to this idea of trying to understand how the constitution evolves and how it changes. Because sometimes the constitution changes because the rules have changed. And sometimes the rules don't change, but the people applying those rules apply them in a slightly different way. So so things like the um, you know, the, the cabinet manual, how how is the prime minister, any particular prime minister, going to use their particular discretion as to who they are and are not going to refer and when they're going to investigate, say, a minister knowingly misleading the House? And that that is a discretion that can be exercised differently. And I think what a lot of our constitution is showing is this attitude of how people use their powers is just as important as the powers they actually have in certain circumstances. And I teach a lot of constitutional law to people from a whole range of different backgrounds. And I think the thing I always find fascinating is when I teach it to someone from Scandinavia. So I had a lovely student from Sweden who would sort of look at me and say, why do you think it's wrong if you said a policy and someone said, here's a criticism and you can't change? You know, why why is that wrong for us? It's better to change because someone has given you a different point of view when you've thought about it and reflected on it. Oh, yes, that will make it better. Whereas the culture here seems to be, no, 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 I can't back down. This this is my policy and that's it. And I have to push it through. And I think that is a deep sort of cultural thing that influences what the rules are and how the rules operate. So I, th- I think even if you change the rules without changing attitudes to how you operate and apply your powers under those rules, you're not necessarily going to change how the constitution works either. They're deeply enmeshed, even though we like to think we can separate them out when we're studying them. And even the idea that we would have a referendum where it was just taken for granted that a simple majority would suffice, I mean, that wouldn't be a given in many systems. And I think it maybe goes back and to your question about, well, how do we decide what's constitutional? And, you know, of, of course, historically, we haven't had any kind of formal categorization of things that are constitutional and things that therefore warrant a different sort of mechanism for change. You know, it goes back to the old idea that anything can be accomplished by a simple act of parliament. A simple majority work in the House of Commons, and therefore we sort of we read that over into a referendum on a huge constitutional matter. But, you know, in many in many systems, that would be anathema. But I suppose there was precedent there, wasn't there, of 1975? Oh, yeah. Which would have made yeah. it politically... Sort of, I mean, when it comes to the sort of prime minister and, and ministerial, I've always, I have to admit, this is not a political point. I found it slightly absurd that you know the team captain gets to referee his team. <laughs> yeah, you know, whoever the prime minister is. I mean, you know, but anyway, it's not, that's not up to me, thank God. So, by way of a thought experiment, and you can you can refuse to take this on if you want. Imagine we had a, a different electoral system that produced, you know, the sort of fuzzy, messy, nightmare sort of coalitions that you get across the rest of Europe. What would be the big impacts that would have on how our constitution works and how we think about it, do you think? I mean, are there obvious things you can identify? We'd have to go and think about, back to the fixed-term parliament and the, the current dissolution of call, calling the parliament bill going through. We've already seen from, from coalition governments that fixed terms are probably going to be necessary in those situations. You can't have an element of a coalition where whoever is 
the Prime Minister gets to decide as and when they're going to dissolve Parliament and call an election general election. So I think if you got to that situation, I think you'd have to have fixed terms and that'd be one change. I'd hope that it would change the political culture and how things would work. And so we'd have less of a greener legislature and more of an ability to scrutinise. You'd also have to think about my, my favourite standing order, standing order number 14. Do you really want to give whoever is the government the ability to organise who hears what when and how long you debate whatever issue within Parliament? I think you'd need a committee, a business committee that went away and sat down and, and worked out what you discussed when and all of those if we're lucky, would improve how far there's democratic scrutiny. We might even get more democratic scrutiny of a delegated legislation, which would be a wonderful thing if we could move in that particular direction. But I'm not sure how much further it would change things, if that makes sense. In some ways, it would legitimise some of the things we do. So it's, it's more legitimate to have parliamentary sovereignty when you've actually got a coalition government that really does reflect a majority of the country of the electorate and not just a majority of seats. So it would sort of, in some sense, be, be more legitimate to have the sovereignty and to give weight to these deliberations of parliament in court judgments. It would force us to think again about that key relationship between parliament and, and the executive, wouldn't it? Because much as we spend time teaching our students about things like parliamentary sovereignty, it seems to me that that relationship is prob probably one of the most important things that shapes how the constitution works. At the moment, we have this sort of fiction that parliament and the government are separate and that parliament holds the government to account. And of course, we all know that the reality is, is different. One consequence is it, it would force us to rethink all of that and to actually align you know, whatever the new reality was with a new form of political practice, because at the moment, the theory and, and the reality seem to be so far out of line. That's where a lot of the problems really come from. One of the sort of outcomes of the last few years is we got ourselves a government in December 2019 that seemed to have its sights set on fundamentally altering the constitution. I mean, there was that couple of paragraphs in the Tory manifesto that either seemed like a throwaway remark or seemed like a full-scale revolution to the constitutional system, depending on how you chose to read them. But has much changed as a result yet? Has the government changed things as yet? Or does that still remain sort of manifesto rhetoric rather than action? We were promised sort of a big review, weren't we? A kind of an overarching review of the relationship between the judiciary and, and the executive. And of course, what we ended up with so far is the independent review of administrative law and the independent human rights act review. What always strikes me about those two reviews is that the reviews themselves turned out to be quite thoughtful and measured and modest in terms of what they were proposing. And in each case, the government took those reports and essentially said, well, that's not much good, is it? And so here's a bunch of, of much more sort of radical proposals. In the end, with the Judicial Review and Courts Bill, what's going to happen, I think, is still relatively limited. I guess we have to wait and see what comes out of the consultation following the Human Rights Act review. You could look at this from a sort of constitutionalist perspective. You could say, well, it could have been a lot worse in that there was going to be this huge review and that didn't happen. And there have been these more granular reviews and so far nothing earth shattering has come out of them. But I mean, certainly to me, it does sort of demonstrate a, a background sort of assumption on the part of the government that there is a fundamental issue, a fundamental problem that needs to be solved from their point of view in terms of the courts overreaching themselves. And there does seem to be, you know, an appetite to limit that. It's still too early to say, I think, what's going to come of it. But it seems like there's certainly political capital being invested in, in all of that. 
I think the only thing I'd add is that we are in the process of pushing, or however you want to put it, the dissolution and calling of Parliament bill through Parliament at the moment. So that's gone through the Commons. With, I think it was a very short debate, uh, particularly when it went through committee stages. Various, I think it was about two or three hours of the actual stages of trying to think about possible amendments to its clauses. Um, it is now before the House of Lords, and that is quite a large change. And I think it's not necessarily a change people are aware of. It doesn't sound, when you talk about reviewing human rights protections or reviewing big relationships, that sounds, oh, this is something that's kind of newsworthy. But this is repealing the fixed term Parliament Act. So we're moving away from fixed terms back to maximum terms and back to a system where the prime minister can decide as and when they want to dissolve parliament to call a new general election, requesting this from the monarch. So don't worry, the monarch can refuse in certain extreme situations. So dissolution principles that the government has set out that will try and explain when that will happen. And it's removing parliament's ability to have a vote on when you dissolve. And it's also removing court's ability to check on the decision to dissolve parliament. And those are quite big changes, but I don't think anyone's really discussing them in full depth. And for me, that's quite concerning because it can have a huge impact on accountability, on when we have general elections, on when people will be voting. And yet, I don't think there's necessarily a big discussion of that. I think that might be the bigger change than some of these other changes that seem to have hit headlines more. Drilling down a bit into this government, I mean, Peter Hennessy has famously said that this prime minister is an existential threat to what he's called the good chap theory of government. And, you know, we've had all these scandals and there are personality elements to them. There are political elements to them. There's also, I think, a constitutional element to them in the sense of, you know, can you imagine a constitutional order that would constrain someone like a Boris Johnson? Someone who obviously strains this the current conventions. I mean, is, is there a constitutional fix? Does this make you think, actually, we need to revisit how our constitution works when it comes to, for instance, you know, the captain refereeing his own team or whatever? I mean, does part of your work include thinking, actually, this is something we need to do differently? You've kind of got the two elements to it again. So in terms of should the captain be refereeing these kinds of issues of can you set what the rules are and be in charge of enforcing those particular rules. You don't find that in other constitutional settings. And so there are systems with constitutions that will set up much more clearly what the executive is. So we, we don't have a full lovely legal definition about what the executive is, who has executive power and how they're meant to exercise it. So other constitutional systems will set that up and will have very clear examples of what the legislature can do, what the executive can do, and have sort of enforceable accountability mechanisms. But that comes from deciding you want to move to a constitutional system with the constitution setting out potentially legally enforceable checks and balances, which obviously does not sit well with parliamentary sovereignty. But even if you do all of that, there's still going to be instances in which the personalities of those you're regulating aren't necessarily going to make it easy for you to regulate, particularly if you have power to do things like, well, I'm in charge of the remuneration of the judiciary and I'm in charge of who gets to be oh, a member of the judiciary, then there's still problems. You can't have a perfect system. But I do think we need to take a step back and ask ourselves, should we have a system where the person making the rules is the person enforcing the rules? So they're essentially making their own rules and enforcing them against themselves. That, for me, I think is starting to fall apart.
what recent events really bring home is a lot of this depends on who you have in those sorts of roles in the first place. And that actually raises some, some much harder questions, I think, that don't have any quick fixes about our political culture, about people who get into politics, about the way that we sort of view our politicians. At the end of the day, we either have to say, well, those problems are too difficult to solve. And so we need a, a much stronger sort of remedial system at the other end, or else we dislike the implications of that so much that we have to go back to square one and sort of sit in a darkened room and think really hard about how we actually fix things at that sort of grassroots or sort of ground level so that we don't need to worry so much about uh, having these remedial sort of systems in place at the other end of the of the system. But at the moment, I think we're sort of falling between those two stools because the system is broken to an extent in that more fundamental sense. And also we don't have the tools to then fix it at the, the other end. Now, I've got to ask, I'm sorry about this, and I, don't, I suppose you could not answer if you don't want to, but would it be easier or indeed would it be better if we had a codified constitution, like a text we could refer to? I always say not necessarily because it, 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 yeah, I'll leave it there. I'm not, I'm not going beyond that. <laughs> I had to try. I, I, I think Alison's answer is an excellent one. I think all, all, I, would, all I would add to it in, in, in a sentence or two is I guess it depends what it is you want to achieve. And I think it goes back a bit to my previous answer, which is that you can change some things by that kind of formal change. But if you think that the problems are more cultural, then there's a limit to what that kind of change can. Of course, it can it can lead to changes in the political culture, but I think there's still a limit to what it can achieve. I mean, one of the things that, that I wonder about is even if you'd answered yes to that question, you know, in a country that is so polarised at the moment, I've got to sort of wonder whether... You know, whether the sort of constitutional convention you need to draft this kind of document is even feasible. I'm not convinced, but I don't know what you two think. In theory, yes. In practice at the moment, no. I think we're still dealing with fallouts from Brexit, fallouts from COVID. You need a period of constitutional calm in which you can say, OK, now let's step back and reflect. And I, I might see that in my lifetime. You never know. There's a glimmer of hope. I might live that long. <laughs> I think at some point, I think that that would be a, a wonderful thing to do. But I wonder if there's a risk at the moment of forcing that conversation and turning it into a kind of Brexit on steroids in the, in the sense that it just forces so many more difficult issues to the surface that we're just not in a position to to resolve because of where things currently stand and because of all of the background that's still there from Brexit. I mean, you mentioned COVID. Have we, have we learned any big constitutional lessons from COVID, do you think? I'm not sure it's a lesson. I think it may have brought up two things to, to attention. One, just how much executive power there is and how little scrutiny there can be. So again, when you talk to people from other countries and you explain that all your lockdown measures came from delegated legislation brought in quickly with a chance for Parliament to look at them later to check them, they sort of look at you as if you did what? And it's because there is so much executive power. And I think also the extent to which we've had this sort of explosion of guidelines, I think that's really brought to our attention. There are these things called guidelines. What do they do? How do we regulate them? How do we check them and have any kind of democratic oversight over them. The other thing, it's made people realise that we are actually devolved, which is, is a good thing. I think people, it, it suddenly came as a shock. Well, I can't travel to Wales. 
no, you can't <laughs> because we are devolved. And I think that in a sense, that's been a good thing to learn because I don't think particularly people in England quite fully understood how devolution works. I mean, I had that moment of revelation. Uh, I don't suppose I should laugh about it, but I suppose I can now. My mum's funeral, because we're sort of halfway through the planning process when someone said, you realise that it's only 20 people in Scotland as opposed to 30 in England. I was like, don't be so ridiculous. <laughs> it, was, it transpired that, yeah, the rules are totally different in Scotland. And, you know, even I, as someone who notionally studies these things, managed to be quite taken aback by, by that particular difference. But sorry, Mark. I would agree entirely with what our listener has said. And just, I think, on the point you just made, Anand, I think because the COVID rules had such a sort of dramatic and tangible impact on everybody's lives in, in such personal ways, I think that brings that sort of that idea that, it, that we've got different rules in different places. It brings it home in a way that's an abstract understanding that the regulatory regime for this or that is different in Scotland. It just It just doesn't do that. Hmm. Now, I mean, while the government's got its ideas about the Constitution, you can imagine that Gordon Brown's currently sitting in his study, bashing away on his typewriter, just writing a constitution for us, for the Labour Constitutional Review. And one of the interesting dilemmas that comes out of that is the sense you get is that he wants a UK system that looks and feels a bit more federal. How would you square that with the principle of parliamentary sovereignty that is at the heart of our constitutional system now? Or can you? All I would say is that our constitution is nothing if not pragmatic. And I mean, it, you know, think about when we joined the European Union and we had this thing called the primacy of European Union law and people were like, well, how is that ever going to work with parliamentary sovereignty? And we kind of found a way. I mean, it involved an awful lot of fudge or, or constructive ambiguity again. Um, but you know, we found a way of saying, yes, somehow... And constitutional lawyers could argue for months about how or sometimes whether. But, you know, somehow we found a way of sort of saying, well, Parliament's still sovereign, but EU law has primacy. My feeling is that whatever the fudge ended up being, I sort of think that, that if we decided, if there was real political will behind a move to a more federal kind of, of structure, I think I'd find it surprising if, if we ended up saying, oh, well, that was a terribly good idea, but we just can't do that because of parliamentary sovereignty. I think that we'd find some kind of way through it. I mean, the conclusion I'm drawing from this conversation is that we've got this sort of black and white macho political culture buttressed by a sort of fudgy, wishy-washy legal culture. I mean, it's, it's quite, it's quite, the contrast is quite interesting. Isn't it? Anyway, Alison. I agree with Mark that it's not easy to think how you can square the circle. I think in some senses, the fudge with the EU was easier because we had to, because of EU rules, make sure that somehow we ended up with the primacy of EU law. So we have this wonderful idea when we were part of the EU that we could disapply, which wasn't the same as quashing legislation. And it was just kind of a little lovely, lovely, loyally fudge of, of thinking of, of how to get around it. And I think... More fudge. More fudge. I think the difficulty is that when it comes to thinking through a federal structure, we've got to ask ourselves the key question, how do we get UK that's different from England? And I think that is the key thing we've got to think through, because at the moment we tend to merge England and UK. And much in the federal structure, you can think, well, UK should be thinking about the powers England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have and what the settlement is. And maybe give priority to UK law. If you can't separate out UK and England, that is not going to work. And I think it's that aspect we've got to think very carefully about. And in some sense, as if we really wanted a structure we could operate what we currently have 
in a more federal way by just using the powers that we have with an aspect of restraint, because you would understand that there's a bottom up aspect of devolution and not just a top down element. So in some sense, the fudge might end up being we use the current structures, but in a way that is more recognising the idea of a federal structure so that if there is a civil convention that isn't adhered to, so there's a you ask for legislative consent motion that is then refused. There's a kind of process of coming up with a compromise and agreement rather than just being able to say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. It's only politically enforceable, not legally enforceable. So we can just go ahead anyway. You two have, have launched a new initiative to sort of foster greater public understanding of constitutional law. And I'll let you talk about that and do a little plug in a minute. I will always remember one moment from 2016 when we organised some citizens' assemblies on the Brexit outcome up in Manchester. And I went up for the first couple of sessions. I remember at tea time in one session, this sort of elderly lady comes over to me and said, you know, the one thing that's really worrying me at the moment is all this Henry VIII legislation that's passing through Parliament. And I sort of looked at her and I thought, this is what Brexit has done. We've now got a nation of people who are interested in the sort of arcane issues of the British Constitution. I mean, have you noticed the same thing, that actually people talk about some... I mean, they might not get it like you two do, obviously, but that there is an interest now that there wasn't before. Would that be fair to say? I think that there is, which in one way is very nice because it means that people are interested in the kind of thing that we're, that we're doing. I suppose a little bit of me thinks that it would be probably better on balance if there was a slightly less need for people to be quite as interested as, as they have been. Because if everything's working well and running along nicely, then maybe it doesn't need to be front page news all the time. So I think that my professional sort of pride in the fact that this is all terribly interesting is tempered by my sort of citizen's response that it's a shame that it needs to be quite as, as interesting as it is. But you now have this unparalleled opportunity to fix the UK constitutional system in your professional lifetime, <laughs> which has been denied to previous generations of academic lawyers. So, <laughs> and, and so what, what is your project about? Do you want to just explain it to us and how it works? The idea is really to try and build on that initial interest and sort of build the momentum, but also inform people as to some of the things they might not be aware of that's going on, but also some of the sort of background constitutional principles to help put people in position where they can think about, well, what do I think the answer should be in this particular situation? So, for example, we've been recently putting a lot of explainers up about the Human Rights Act review. So trying to set out what the direction of travel seems to be and just trying to set out, well, why would the government think this? What is the argument against it? What do you need to think about if you were to decide for yourself whether you wanted to make this change. And that's kind of really what it is to build on the momentum. I think a lot of the momentum came from Miller being on the BBC News. And I think some of that has died down a bit, but I think there's still an interest. And so this is the kind of way of trying to make sure people are aware of what's going on and can look at this in an informed way. The fact that there was so much debate about these things and so much in the media and so many sort of politicians weighing in, it sort of makes you realise that there, there is a lot of, you know, a lot of this that people maybe don't understand very well or, or have misconceptions about. That's not a criticism. I mean, when COVID struck, it brought home to me that I could you could write on the back of a stamp what I know about science, and, and that's fine. But I, I think it just brings home to us that actually... If we're going to have this kind of national debate and conversation, then actually 
helping people to start from a more informed perspective would be a good thing. So that's sort of what we're trying to, to do. Well, I think we can all agree that's a worthy ambition. And you have a website, which is... Constitutionallawmatters.org. I would recommend listeners to go to that site because the impossible has happened. Lawyers writing things that I understand. So good luck with the project. It's something that's long overdue and I hope it goes well. Alison and Mark, thank you very much. Before I wrap up, let me just flag to listeners on a similar theme that towards the end of March, we have some ridiculously thick report on the British Constitution and governance coming out and a conference to accompany it. So look out for that. But for the moment, Alison and Mark, thanks ever so much. That was utterly fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.